can I interrupt here? I think for this podcast, I'm going to introduce a bell that we're going to ring every time there's a ridiculous problem that could be easily solved with a database. Welcome to the Mastering Medicare podcast, where we demystify healthcare and Medicare for senior serving professionals and providers with your co-hosts, Dr. Alex Moseni and Dr. Amy Schiffman. Visit MasteringMedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. So I'm so excited to introduce today's <laughs> guest. Stop smiling. <laughs> I'm so excited to be introducing today's guest. I have with us Andy Diamond. He is a good friend, a colleague in the senior serving world, and he is the president and CEO of two amazing companies that I work closely with right now. One is called Diamond Medical Labs, and they provide phlebotomy, mobile phlebotomy services to homes, assisted livings, and nursing homes. He is also an owner of Mobile Medical Imaging, which provides mobile medical imaging, right? So mobile x-rays, mobile ultrasounds, ultrasounds great, all that. And I, we are so excited to have Andy here to talk to us today about Medicare and how his world interfaces with Medicare and how his world is challenged on a day-to-day business side, um, what are the pain points within his business model. Uh, so we're just really excited to have a guest today. We're so excited. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Welcome, Andy, to Mastering Medicare. Yeah, so Andy Diamond, he is a colleague who was basically starting a non-house calls practice, but a x-ray company at about the same time that I was starting my house calls practice. Is that right? I was getting into the industry at the same time. Getting into the industry. You were jumping out of another industry into the healthcare industry around the time that I was starting my house calls practice. Which is when? In about 20... April 2014. Oh, you were a little (laughs) bit behind me. I started mine in 2011. That's all right. I used another company until you came along. I remember. Um, So... Andy is kind of a, I'll call him a healthcare polyglot because you speak two languages. You speak labs and you speak radiology. And you speak labs and radiology in the house call space, in the assisted living space, in the nursing home space. Correct. And you do all of those fluently, so that's pretty good. And you also um, bill Medicare. And that's why you're on our show today. Well, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Medicare is always a fun world. It is a fun world. Um, But I think what I want to do is let's start from the beginning, because we might as well find out why you were interested at all in doing what you're doing. And then we're going to jump into how does Medicare interface with your practices and what you do every day and what kinds of people do you employ and how do you get paid and all of those really fun, very granular Medicare things. But Andy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So I actually got in the business in April 2014, as I mentioned. Uh, my business partner for the imaging company is Desmond Brown. Um, he actually started Mobile Medical Imaging back in 1991. We are currently a veteran-owned business and a minority-owned business. Um, he has really grown the business very nicely, but when I had met him, he was uh, having issues growing the business within the nursing home space. Uh, I had quite a few relationships in that world, so we decided that we would partner up and see how I could help him grow. Uh, and we've grown quite dramatically since then. We've grown about five to six hundred percent over the past five years, which has been wow. fun. Most That's of that amazing. growth was in the first two or three years um, in terms of my regular connections. Then we've been growing nicely since then as well. Uh, about three years ago, um, so July of 2017, 
uh, about six months before, we had quite a few of our clients reach out to us and tell us they love the imaging service, but they absolutely hated the lab services they were using. I believe Amy was one of them we had spoken with. Um, and we looked into it and we said, how hard could it be to do labs? I mean, doing the how same hard way could it be to just like start a lab, hire phlebotomists, exactly. get legit with Medicare? Couldn't be hard at all. Couldn't be hard at all. So we manage were crazy. a mobile workforce. No problem. <laughs> so right? we, we were crazy enough and, and we decided to do it. So in July of 2017, we opened. Uh, Amy was our first client. She was our guinea pig, if you will, just to make sure we get everything working properly and make sure that we were able to service the clients, bill properly, et cetera. Um, and then about six months later, we started taking on other clients, being assisted livings, nursing homes, and other home physician groups. Uh, we have grown quite nicely since then. Uh, we have grown since the first year. Um, when we started with just Amy, now we're up to about 30 to 35 nursing homes, um, an additional 35 assisted livings. And then we do a lot of small group homes and individual patients that are in their home as well. Um, so we've grown nicely. Um the issue that we have is the issue that a lot of Medicare providers have is making sure we get the proper information from the ordering physicians making or the nursing homes or livings and making sure we can bill properly and collect properly. So it's definitely been an interesting introduction into the healthcare world. Uh, and the main reason we got in is I think it's the same reason why a lot of people get in. One, the seniors population is definitely underserved. There's a huge need for the services that we provide that a lot of people don't want to provide. And it's it's something that is a growing population, as we all know, as the baby boomers age, uh, there is more and more need for what we do. And we're just trying to make sure that we can do our part to take care of the seniors. So Andy, what's your role in these? Uh, and and can, can you name the two companies again? Sure. So Mobile Medical Imaging, which is the corporate office based out of Silver Spring. Okay. And then we have a salad office in Pikesville. That is That was the original company. And the lab is Diamond Medical Laboratories. We're based out of Owings Mills, Maryland is where the actual lab is. And then we actually have phlebotomists that go around to all of the different locations, uh, draw the patients, get the specimens ready, bring them back in to be run in Owings Mills. Got it. So uh, this is all so new to me. So do you mind if I ask a few clarifying go, questions? Alex, ask those questions. So when you <laughs> created a, a mobile lab company, it was not just the phlebotomists who need to draw the labs, but you have to have create a physical lab that would actually run the test to you. So you're not using like LabCorp or somebody to actually run the specimens. Correct. We, uh, last month, we did 93% of our own tests in-house. We do use a couple of reference labs that we send the unusual tests out to that we don't do on a regular basis. But the daily tests that are most urgent for the patients, we do all of those in-house. And, and how does this work? Does Do these facilities, uh, these assisted livings and nursing homes, have a contract with you or they just order from you and they could switch tomorrow to another company? They definitely have a contract. Um, and the reason why they have a contract with us, because when, especially when you're in a nursing home, you have the Part A and Part B billing. The Part A billing, the facility is responsible for paying us. They get a certain amount per day per patient. And then out of that comes some of our costs. So with that, we have to have a contract to know what they're paying us for what we're doing. Um, but then if you have the long-term care residents or an assisted living, which is obviously usually straight insurance, we build the insurances directly. We still do have agreements in place just for compliance sake to make sure that uh, they want to make sure we have the correct insurances if we're coming to the building, stuff like that. Um, but we definitely have contracts with those types of facilities. When it comes to home physician groups, it's just a home physician liking our services and wanting to use it for their patients. Got it. And so when you get an order... You have to determine, is this a Part A patient or a Part B 
patient or slash order? Like, can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. So when we're going to these nursing homes, we yeah. have no idea what we're doing when we, when we go in there. We don't know what that patients we're doing. That doesn't sound that great. You must know <laughs> well, something. We don't have I mean, anything like, that's going on in the lab industry. But, yeah. but when we go into these facilities, we never know what we're going to be drawing when we walk in. Uh, we actually have an online ordering system that the facility puts all the information into. Okay. And when we come in, they print out a draw log. So it has every single patient that we're drawing in their facility broken down by the location in the facility okay. and broken down by room number as well. And sorry, just to clarify, this is the nursing home side. These are the nursing so, homes. So, But this is going to be all part A. Is everything that you do in the nursing home part A? No. Okay, so no, keep going. That, Sorry, I didn't mean the, to interrupt. So you get that's there. definitely part of the, the concern or the issues that we have sometimes. Uh, um, so we go in these facilities and we don't know what we're drawing. Right. So when we go in, we have just phlebotomists in there. We can't verify insurance. We can't do anything beforehand. Once again, why it's important to have contracts with these facilities. So anything that we cannot actually bill out because certain insurances do have contracts only with the big um, the big labs such as LabCorp or Quest or one sure. of those, they actually don't have a contract with us. So what we have to do is we build a facility for those. That's a big reason why we have to have that contract with the nursing facilities. Once we draw the patients, we bring them back to our lab, we run it. We still haven't verified insurance yet because yeah. it's so urgent to get the results back. The goal is for us to get the results back to the nursing homes by 1 o'clock. About 95% of the time that happens. Um, the rest of the other 5% were usually by about one thirty, two o'clock. Um, it's usually on the crazy days of the month. Um, when everything comes back and then we go to billing, billing is really the part that has to differentiate between the part A and the part B. And we have access to the census reports that these facilities have. Um, a lot of times in a facility, the facility might be, the beds might be dual eligible, um, for both. We, we, we don't know, but when we pull the census report, it tells us which patients were skilled for what days. And then our billing team breaks it up accordingly in our system and then bills out to the insurance what they're supposed to bill out to insurance and then bills out to uh, the facility what they're supposed to bill out to the facility. I feel like I, wow. we need to translate that. So I'm going to tra- – can I translate that? Please? Yeah. So what you're saying is that in a nursing home or a skilled nursing facility, and we talked a little bit about in some of our other prior podcasts, sort of what does that mean? What is What is a nursing home? You know, because people can go through the – hospitalization and then they get discharged to like a post-acute care rehab situation or they're in long-term care living in the facility as a Medicare, Medicaid patient or just a Medicaid patient. Correct. So you've got these kind of multiple types of patients that are actually living in the same building that has the same name on it. Right. So that you're saying that when your phlebotomists get there on their scheduled lab day or if it's a PRN or as needed visit, they'll just go in, get the labs that they need to get Boom, 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 boom. They go collect all these labs. You bring them back to your lab. And then it is at that point that you figure out who you're going to be billing for what thing. Correct. And let's just say you've got patient John Smith. How do you figure out if John Smith, just based on what you have access to, whether or not he's going to be billed under part A or part B? So even though it's the same patient, different days could be different for that individual patient. So we what? pull, yeah. So we pull this thing called a census report. It comes out of the nursing home system, and what it t- says is each day what the patient was considered, if they and what insurance they're under. So my staff goes through each one and has to do it accordingly and make sure that they're um, itemizing where the patient was for that day. And our billing system set up for that. So if we know patient A has been um, a long-term care resident for 30 days. We can actually just put that in our system and it automatically goes throughout all of their labs that we've had for them. And so if they are a long-term care 
resident, meaning that they are not just post-discharge from a hospital and not there for rehab per se, they're a long-term care resident, are you billing Part B in that particular case? Long-term care, if they have Medicare Part B, yes, we are billing Medicare Part B. And what we all love about Medicare Part B for lab is it actually covers 100% for lab. So no copay on labs for Part B, no matter where you're at, though, right? Like whether you're living you know, at home, whether you're living in a facility, whether you're living in an assisted living, if it's Part B and you're billing Part B, it is paid for 100%. Correct. As long as Medicare deems it to be medical, not medically necessary. necessary. And that is backed up based on ICD-10 codes, correct? Correct. The only time, the only other time you may have an issue with billing for a lab and this happens in assisted livings or nursing homes, is when you are you have a lab that is ordered too often. As an example, ah, a vitamin D vitamin can be D. done once every six months, but you never know when the last one was done, so we have no idea when we're drawing it. It very well could have been done three days ago, and we have no idea, and the patient very often doesn't know either. So we may <laughs> bill after that, and that may be something that's not covered. That may get billed to the facility, the patient, depending on how our agreements work. So I just want to let you know that what you just said, which is, that a patient could have had something done three days ago, and then now you're doing, we're sort of repeating the same thing, and it's not going to be paid for by Medicare. That blows Alex and mine's minds. I mean, yeah. like, it blows our mind, right? Like, how could it be that a patient is going to basically agree? They're, they're sort of agreeing to have these labs drawn, just sort of verbally, or just by putting their arm out and having somebody put a tourniquet on it and draw their blood. They are really not people are not knowledgeable enough about their own health to be able to say, no, no, not only do I actually not know that I had a vitamin D drawn three days ago, I also have no idea that Medicare is now going to charge me for that because the lab company is not going to get a dime from sending it out, even with the perfect ICD-10 code. I mean, the situation is ridiculous, it's right? It's kind of crazy, I mean, you right? can't expect at all for the patients to have any idea, especially in a nursing home where the, the, most people are, have some degree of cognitive decline, right? But, but even the many doctors don't even know that these limits even exist, Correct. right? Let, yeah, let's and say like, then, and PSH, any, vitamin D, so hemoglobin A1C, does, those are like the three main ones I think that we bump into in our my practice, but yeah. So other than Medicare, <clears throat> who has any visibility into what these limits are and where you stand currently, meaning each patient, where do they stand relative to their limits Can for the year? Can a patient, look, Andy, are you familiar at all with any sort of resources that a patient might have? To... Anybody, anybody, yeah, even who, doctors. Yeah, who cares? You, you, the doctor, the patient, the patient's representative, there is no place to look for what is called same and similar tests that have been done so you can figure out what your limits are. Not as far as I know. I'm sure there's a way to contact Medicare, and you can probably ask them directly for oh, yeah, each patient. Oh, yeah, everyone has so much time to do that. <laughs> After waiting Hold on. So, so there is no electronic tool where you as the lab or the provider can log in His and see, His brain just went, Psh, yeah, I'm starting that, that business. Yeah, like, <laughs> How Mary, do I find that? I mean, this is kind of crazy, isn't it? Agreed. And what that's per- part of the issues that we have. So, okay, so we haven't really dove, dived, whatever, too far into this, but can you tell me what percentage of vitamin Ds, you may or may not know the answer to this, what percentage of vitamin Ds <laughs> or any tests that get done end up getting passed along to the patient? Because of this Because issue. of this particular issue of not knowing whether or not you've had that lab test done before. So passed along to the individual patient for us is actually 0%. And the reason being is because in order to be able to build a patient when they're on Medicare, you have to have them sign an ABN. And an ABN is a form that pretty much says, this is, we're not sure if this is going to be covered for you because of XYZ reasons. Mm. And you're signing the form saying, if it's not covered, this is how much you're going to pay. 
we do not have our clients sign those, our patients sign those. And the reason being is a lot of our clients are not mentally able to sign them. We don't know if they can legally sign them. Right. So it, instead of having that confusion, we don't have them sign them and we have the risk. On the nursing home side, the nursing home is responsible. The nursing home, the, but that's on, that's part, even for part B. Even for part B, if they're ordering tests. So the nursing tests, home is, so what This percent, is why you have the contract. That's exactly. why you have the contract to say but basically. rephrase your question yeah. So basically, in given a situation where you have somebody that you can bill for something that you don't get reimbursed for, for let's say over test, quote unquote, over testing or excessive testing for a specific test in any given year, because maybe they were in, you know, living at home and their regular doctor ordered a vitamin D earlier in the year. And then that same doctor ordered maybe another vitamin D. Great. And now suddenly they're in long-term care in a nursing home and somebody else orders a vitamin D. So now we've got three orders in one year, one of them in excess of what Medicare will pay for. How does, how often do you see that happening? Honestly, I couldn't tell you because they're write-offs. No, but you said you're going to send the bill to the nursing home. Oh, the facilities? The facilities. We don't even pay attention. You don't even pay attention. Would you guess it's a lot or um, a little? In the nursing homes, definitely. It is quite a bit because a lot of times when a new resident comes in, they have their panel that oh, they, they order. they order a panel. They order their panel, and that's the first thing we're doing right, with that Right, and that patient. would probably be like a CBC, a complete metabolic panel, a TSH, a hemoglobin A1C, whatever exactly. it might be, including a vitamin D. So they're probably completely... The excessive vitamin D ordering, it just doesn't end. Correct. <laughs> it just doesn't end. And then and then the patient is like, wow, you just did another vitamin D on me. I'm not sure what they're going to do with that information anyways, but, right? Correct. But it's part of the panel. And so the panel does not take into account the limits that Medicare offers or designates for specific labs. Not at all. If you have a, a patient, which happens very often, they're in the hospital, they get discharged to one um, long-term care facility, one nursing facility. They get readmitted back to the hospital. They get discharged again to another nursing care facility. <laughs> oh, they just within, within a month. Isn't healthcare so organized? And oh, they just God. had the same thing done at two different places and the hospital two different times. It, it happens all the time. Okay. I just, we just like, maybe at the end of this podcast, we just go out to lunch and start a company that just like looks into I mean this is uh, it's the insanity of it because patients are now like if you say okay we kind of went through this in a, a few of our other podcasts Andy so you'll have to pardon us as we like sort of speak as if we've already talked about this but basically a patient is paying for their part B you know a, a certain amount every single month and they have to pay you know co-pays or whatever you want to call it, 20% on the 80-20 split. But you're saying in labs, it's 100%, except if some doctor over-orders a test for them, then they actually have to pay. And how much would you say a vitamin D test costs? Mid-30s. Mid-30s. So if it's ordered two or three extra times a year, that's on the patient. That's just one test. Yeah. That's just one. Right. How about a TSH? Because there's limits on that too. TSH, I believe, is every three months. Yeah, it's every three months. And A1C as well, I believe, is once every three months. Or, no, one of them is every two years. Well, whatever it is, we can certainly put that on our um, Facebook um, group. But the how much would how much is a TSH? TSH, I don't have it offhand. I believe it's something 20-ish dollars, give or take. Okay, and how about a hemoglobin A1C, which we know is completely over-tested because... People use it as a screening tool, even though they're not supposed to for diabetes. But how much is a hemoglobin A1C? It's between 10 and 20. So basically, you have the potential to be billed. If your doctor is just kind of like every quarter or every month or every whatever, you have the potential to have hundreds and hundreds of dollars of lab fees. Even though you have 
a lab that's literally not going to even have to bill you the other 20% or your secondary insurance the other 20%. You could just still cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching because Medicaid, Medicare and doctors and the healthcare system is so disparate that everybody's just... Correct. Well, th- this is like a... This is like a commentary on the dysfunction of government. Uh, you know, well, you don't know I how mean, much things cost, and you don't know if it's ordered before, and you don't know the rules. Well, it's like surprise. Yeah, and you don't understand technology, right? Like, I, I if I think one of the greatest things we could do for the U.S. government, the entire government, because this oh, is not boy, a problem. Here we go. Is, is just so Fox, no, here, is, I'm going to unfold is, it for you. No, but no, it's very kidding. simple. Teach people what is a database. Right. And what does it mean to like for real? You know, several of my family members work for NIH and some other mega large, you know, government agencies with tens of billions of dollars. And they're still working on like outmoded spreadsheets being emailed back and forth. You technology uh, idealist, like you. It blows my mind that high level executives don't understand the value of a database, a, right? Right. And, or, or let alone a relational database and then giving people, you know, access to the data they need. So all this talk about waste in healthcare, yet CMS is not giving access to the people who need this sort of information so that they can make the right decision. Let this, me ask this a is question. So frustrating. This, and, okay. <laughs> okay, he's lost his mind. Let me ask a question. Andy, is... The data that you guys collect, which would be called lab data, it gets reported back to the nursing home, the assisted living, the physician. And do you guys give direct, like, can the patient call you directly and get their own lab tests? Do you dispense those? We dispense them to the ordering providers. To the ordering providers. Okay. Do you push it up into any sort of local database, you know, like the, the CRISP? So I I figured that was going to be coming up. Oh, so did you? we oh, actually had did a conversation with Gordon. Uh, prepare, not really, <laughs> but have a good answer for it. Great. Um, so we've spoken with Crisp in the past. Mm. And the problem is it costs money. And for us to upload all of our information into they Crisp. They charge you? They charge you? In order, not, maintain, in order to maintain the database, we met with them. There was going to be a charge to be able to. I, I, they had a grant I feel for like our next guest year. speaker is going to have to address that. Yes. <laughs> So they, they had a there was a grant for I think the, we met with them about a year and a half ago mm-hmm. and for the first year we would be uploading information there was a grant that would cover it and then after that they couldn't tell us exactly what it was going to cost a year to maintain the connection and do all that so we would have to pay for our system to integrate with their system and then the information would flow. Oh my god! The problem that we have is that a lot of the nursing homes that we're set up with do push the information to Crisp is what we're told. The problem is our information goes into point-click care, which is a system that a lot of the nursing facilities use. That information gets pushed into CRISP. The problem is the CRISP information doesn't necessarily come back to us. There's no easy way for us as a provider to be able to say, oh, we're it's doing vitamin It's not bi-directional. D. You can't, that's right. That's, exactly. You can't do a same and similar. So, right. So if you were in, in, in the emergency room, I know have some friends that have worked in the emergency room, they may try to pull up the most recent MRI or whatever it might be. If it's in there, they'll see if it's in there and that right. can get them the information a yeah. whole lot quicker. Yeah. There's definitely garbage in, garbage out problem. Right. Like, or nothing in sort of what is an error of omission, shall we say? And nothing coming out. So for us, it'll be great if we're in our lab information system and we can literally look in there and say, okay, for Mary Sue, vitamin D, oh, she had one three months ago by Quest. Great. Hey, doc, do you still need this done? You do? Okay, great. And then the patient gets billed for it. Very often they probably would say, no, just send me those results and they can get those results. Can I interrupt here? I think for this podcast, I'm going to introduce a bell. 
that we're going to ring every time there's a ridiculous problem that could be easily solved with a database, you know, and, and, and access Can I be a cowbell? Can I just... I mean, this is just crazy. I can't... So why don't we explain to people what CRISP is? Because Okay, not well, CRISP from stands for the Chesapeake Regional... Okay, Something. I'm done. Yeah. Okay, it's a health information exchange. It's actually... A, so, by the way, if anyone is from CRISP out there, I want to let you know I like love your organization, so this is not a commentary because well, I don't be- remember it, the name. I, I but- love them, too, because it, it's better than nothing, right? But explain what is a health information exchange. So, basically, it's an aggregator of health information that's coming primarily, I believe, started with the Maryland hospitals. They would sort of upload, you know, important discharge summaries. Like, I think, actually, any note could be up there you can yeah. find it any lab tests any x-rays any radiology so x-rays radiology um but it's a centralized database right, for the chesapeake correct. bay area which is mostly maryland and a few it's, it's, where all the big stakeholders can share the medical data correct. right to make it easier to access yep. um and it's probably one of the more advanced it if is not the I, most my understanding HIE is that it's like crazy yeah we're going to be actually having one of our um Next guest is actually going to, he's on the board of CRISP. So it's going to be kind of interesting to talk to him. And it blows my mind that they asked you, Andy, to to pay for Connectivity. Yeah. Uh, Not because I'm a swinging liberal and I want everything to be free, but it has to, like, this is the type of thing that you want government to pay for, right? Yeah. You, because it's for the it's for the it's going to save money. It's going to save, save money, money massively. Like uh, if for, every for single the, patient right. accidentally has a TSH, a hemoglobin A1C, and a vitamin D, that's like a Medicare patient, which I am almost sure we overorder all of this all the time. And Medicaid, which is paid for much by the state. The state has. A oh yeah, exactly. In, right? Oh right. Is there are there limits on the Medicaid side for these types of things? That I don't know. We don't do that much on the Medicaid side. Got it. Okay. So on the Medicare side, I mean, imagine an additional extra hundred bucks a patient per year unnecessarily. Oh, easily. Easily. And so it's like really falling upon. It really is. It's, 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 Medi- it's Medicare money. It's, it's federal it's, money. It's more than just hitting up against the limits that are mandated by the government. It's also... Um, you don't need to order something because it was just done last week. And Who you can cares what the up? limit is? Yeah. yeah. Like, I, their vitamin D level is not changing from three days ago, nor is it changing from a month ago, really. I mean, like, it might, but... It, it shouldn't be ordered that frequently, and how could we possibly know? Well, I guess— And then what... we can't get in trouble for it. See, then the, the the onus then goes on to the primary care doctor, right? So, like, if you look at how we're getting evaluated, I mean, quite honestly, I think in the situation that, like, we are here in Maryland for any of these sort of innovative programs, we're not actually being evaluated based on cost. It is actually based on utilization of emergency departments and hospitalizations. But that's not universal. That's just the state of Maryland. But if— Medicare is looking at our cost as if every single provider is a cash register, right? Like how much money is Dr. A spending, nurse practitioner B, you know, PAs, you know, anybody who's an NPI number that can interface and bill medic, you know, be responsible for ordering things. If we're all basically cash registers, but you're not giving us the information to say, hey, listen, it's like taking a test and not giving us the information that we know that's going to be on the test. It's basically it. That's right. You have no way... There's no way even for a care manager, even if you had the most amazing care manager in your office that was like managing costs and evaluating, making sure you don't have, you know, people go back to the hospital on this really super granular level of ordering labs. It's kind of amazing that we can't figure that out because we I wouldn't order those labs necessarily. I mean, there's some labs 
we could dive into PGX testing, and that's like a whole other discussion. But that's like a big cost to save money in a nif- in a different place down the road for like deprescribing and such. But just on a basic day to day level, if you want to order a TSH and a vitamin D and a hemoglobin A one C, and you've no idea if it's been ordered before, what are you gonna do? Right, it's a huge problem. Huge problem. All right, well, let's go back to the nursing home example because you were we were talking about you you get a list of the patients and. Certain ones are going to be billed out as Part B, and certain ones are going to be billed out to the facility because the facility is receiving Part A payments, and they get a per diem, like a per day payment. How, in your experience, how do you know how much is usually spent on patients per month on labs in facilities? Like, do you have a per patient per month spend? I couldn't tell you. I mean, it seems <clears throat> like different facilities, depending on who the physicians are that are in there, ah. order tests differently. So there's some facilities that have much more, that the acuity of the patients is much higher. Some or facility, the doctor is more the inclined, doctor is to, more order inclined more to order more labs. It's hard for us to know, but we have seen where uh, a facility will switch out a doctor group and we'll go from being a facility that might order 20 lab, twenty patients a day to 10 patients a day. And we've seen the other way as well, where we oh, had a facility where we were doing 10 patients a day, and all of a sudden we're averaging 20 patients a day. And the reason why is the physicians just order differently based on how they were trained, based on who they worked with. What we would call the things. art of medicine. Correct. Yeah. And everyone has their own specialty in how they do it. <laughs> Some are more artistic than others. <laughs> <laughs> I could make some multiple... Uh, inappropriate remarks right now but then keep it to yourself yeah all right yeah no there's a lot of there's a lot of variability in doctor practices which is a whole another topic in and of itself right um yeah so okay so we've got the nursing homes which it's part a or part b but then in the assisted livings it's all part b right for the most part, it's Part B, but then obviously you have the ACOs that are in there. Um, a lot of it, some ACOs do not allow us to bill them directly, so then we end up billing the assisted livings as well. Um, you have Kaiser, which sometimes you have in the assisted livings. Um, I know, Amy, you've had that in your practice where Kaiser won't pay anybody but Kaiser people, um, right. and that's always interesting. Which do you, is, do you, are you, if you have a patient that somebody orders labs on and they have Kaiser either as a primary or a secondary insurance for like a senior, um, how, how does that work in your in your organization? We build a facility. If it, if it's oh, you a build home, a faci- oh, you don't build Kaiser. If, well, we'll try to build Kaiser. They reject it, and then we build a facility. What is the turnaround time? Like, if you send something, I'm, this is like not to bash Kaiser, but just out of curiosity, if you send the bill to Kaiser, how long does it usually take them to say, "Hey, listen, we're not paying that"? It's different every time. Now we've okay. had as quickly as two two and a half weeks. We've had as long as two or three months. Right. And something in between. And then obviously the facilities get frustrated, saying, "Well, why didn't you send us the bill earlier?" when the patient was here and et cetera, and we have to figure that out with them. Right, right. Andy, how much, talk to me about your denials management process and team. Like, how big of an issue is this? In terms of just general rejections? Yeah. Um, we collect, in the end, about 95% of what we expect to collect. Okay. Um, the other 5%, um, we attempt to collect, we make a reasonable effort to collect, but it's not always easy to collect. When you're dealing with the senior population, um, that's never an easy population to collect from. Sometimes they don't have the resources to pay, and sometimes they're just not organized enough to pay. Um, it happens both ways. Um, in terms of actually dealing with rejections that we can rebuild, very often we have to go back to the physicians, back to the facilities, et cetera, and say, hey, 
we have this order, we're missing X, yeah. Y, and Z, we need other diagnosis code, there wasn't a medical necessity, whatever it might be, fill out that information and then resubmit to Medicare or whatever insurance it might be and hope we get paid. But give me some sense of scale. For every 100 um, lab draws that you guys do, are 30 or so off the bat getting denied and you got to work them to get to the 95% stage uh, of collections? Or And how big is this team? Are you have like three or four people working on this or is this like 30 people? So managing? right now we have three billing people that work on it. Okay. Um, and that's aside from the software person who deals with our billing who a lot of times will have to tweak things. And that's also, we also have two front office people that will pitch in when they, they get bogged down in the billing side. It's not easy. Billing, um, yeah, revenue cycle management is like, woof. It is not easy. And we actually just hired somebody that is starting a couple weeks. And the reason we hired them was exactly that. She's very good at going back and doing the research yeah. and finding out what's the, what the trends are, what's going right. on, what type of things you're not getting paid on, how to fix those things. Because what we found is if we're able to train the facilities properly on what we need up front, yeah. it makes it a whole lot easier on billing on the back end. The problem is, as in most things in healthcare, we may train the director of nursing and the education person and have it working great for two or three months, and then those people that were there end up leaving and going somewhere the else. Turnover becomes the turnover a, is horrible. Just, they, we, yeah. they call it churn and burn. Churn and they burn. come in, the director of nursing gets paid a little bit more to go somewhere else, and they're going to another facility. And we may service that facility, so it might be good, but if we don't, then the new director of nursing that comes in, we have to retrain them. We don't always know they come in. They don't have time to meet with us for the yeah. first three, got, six months. You know, you've got tens and tens and tens of facilities. You can't be following what the workforce management is like at every one of those exactly. facilities. And so um, from your perspective, can you share with us what are the maybe the two or three key things that you are trying to train them on? Like what are the things, that, what are the common mistakes or the issues that come up that you have to keep reinforcing from the people who are ordering your services? The big thing is medical necessity, the proper diagnosis codes. Um, okay. You know, the, the fact that they order a certain test too often, sometimes not much they can do because the physicians are ordering it, they're ordering and what they're the way, ordering. And by the way, they are not trained. The physicians themselves, right. the nurse practitioners, the PAs, we don't know. I, I honestly had no idea until I started doing what is like basically like outpatient outside of the box of the emergency department that I actually had to be more specific. Like in the ER, you could just order stuff. I mean, you'd have to give a reason. Are you talking about diagnosis codes Diagnosis codes. Yeah. It's, hu it's like a huge problem, and they you can't really be coached through it. It's it's sort of like you have to learn it. Like so, you can't just put vitamin D because I'm curious about their vitamin sure. D level or hemoglobin A1C because they look diabetic. You have to like literally have an actual like lit. There's like a list so is it a specificity issue that the ICD-10 code you put is too high in the hierarchy and it's too general? I'm not going to say that. Oh. I'm just going to say there's like a list of ICD-10 yeah. codes that are related to if you want to order sure. um, a hemoglobin A1C, sure. Medicare will accept the following codes as possible ICD-10 yeah. codes. So do you give them, Andy, do you, do you give these folks like a cheat sheet, like similar to what... Amy's talking about. So like, no, as a lab, we're not allowed to tell they're a not physician they're what not allowed works to and tell what them. doesn't work. What? No. <laughs> what? Now, now we will have physicians that call us and sure. say, these are the diagnosis but codes it's we really, have, it's a, and it's we a can dice say, roll. yes, they Hold work. on, hold on. I, know, I, do, I don't Listen, understand. Listen, there are lists. Okay, there are lists. Yeah. I will show you where they are online, but it they actually, the labs are not allowed. You can't call up and be like, can you tell me which what I can put here to get this done, like hyper. So the like, lab is not allowed to tell the physician that 
this or that is an appropriate ICD-10 code for this sort of order? No, because the physician's ordering it for a specific reason. And if we're telling them the actual diagnosis codes, now they can say, hey, you know, I'd like to, I'm ordering it because of hypertension. And sure. we say, well, the diagnosis code is I-10. Okay. We can do that, but we can't actually tell we them. We can't lead them. We can't lead them in any way. Oh, my gosh. Because we're not leading them to like fudge this thing. We're just trying to create some clarity in the process and reduce reduce friction and waste. Because I can tell you right now, the number one problem that I have when, um, I, you know, we get these things back from the major lab companies. Sometimes if like patients go outside of the, the Diamond Lab system, doesn't happen often, but um, like a urinalysis with a reflex culture, like that gets all messed up because if you just write like dysuria, that doesn't cover the reflex culture. So then- Why not? Because the patient, you have to have said UTI also. You actually, you're not going to get- But you paid. don't know whether the patient has a UTI No yet. kidding. This is stupid. <laughs> we Okay, yeah. Who are you calling? Who? 1-800-MEDICARE. Oh, my God. This is so stupid. <laughs> this this system of ordering labs is really, it's a very disorganized thing. It is really like guesswork. Yeah. You're like, gosh, I, I wonder if that will get paid. So vitamin D, we do it as a screening, right? But actu in actuality, you have to put either like osteomalacia or history of hypo, yeah. whatever, hypovitamin Demia or whatever. So you have to actually have a diagnosis of that thing to order that thing. That's so crazy. It's so crazy. Okay, so... But I'm going to tell you right now, on our Facebook group, I am going to put up the ICD-10 codes that we know get paid for vitamin D, TSH, and hemoglobin A1C. So, so that everybody would be able to know. I'll perfect, just put yes. up a sneak. That's another cheat sheet. We need cheat sheet, yeah. straight up. So hold on, Andy. So when the order comes in, it, it, it do you guys see the ICD-10 code with the order? Yes. You do. Unless so it's from my group and we just like give you a diagnosis and make you look it up. So then, <laughs> so you up front can already tell that, oh, that's no. probably not going to fly. Well, I don't think so. No, if he looks at they're the sending, IC, They're if sending looks, it off. No, no. And then they're getting a rejection. Do you no, ever check well, and make sure well, that's that it's criteria? So for yeah, the house calls. Yeah. Yeah. So for the house calls, uh, my billing staff typically does look through it just to make sure that it looks like a little bit get paid. Now we don't always know 100% what's going to get paid. Some yeah. things, you know, we think are going to get paid and they don't. Mm -hmm. um, if we know that something is not going to get paid, we'll always follow up with the ordering physician and say, "Hey, we have a test for Mary Jones. This is the test that was ordered. The diagnosis codes that you have sent will not will not get paid. Is there anything else that we can use?" Yeah. And then they will typically give us a list of, well, they have this, they have that, they have that. And we'll say, oh, thank you very much. And we'll submit it accordingly. So in the claim that goes to the to Medicare or an alternate health plan, is the ICD-10 code included in that claim? Yes. And that's how they have visibility. Because lab draws each have their own CPT code. Okay. Like every single lab that you could order is a CPT code because okay. it's a procedural sure, code. Sure, And then you have to attach an ICD-10 or multiple ICD-10 codes to it. I At see. least one ICD-10 code to each lab. Got it. So each, I see. So like you could write, let's just say generalized weakness. Yeah. And generalized weakness could be the same ICD-10 code for the CBC, sure. for the CMP, for the TSH probably, but it may that won't fly for the yeah. vitamin D. So if you write CBC, CMP, TSH, vitamin D, and write generalized weakness, there is no diagnosis code that they can attribute to the vitamin D. Mm -hmm. They have th then that person will probably 
it'll either come back as like, what what, what will happen? Well, you'll get billed for it. It'll come back, back as, as rejected. 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 So we don't get billed for it, but it comes back as rejected. Right, you get it rejected by Medicare. And then we have okay, to either yeah. get the proper information to rebill or we have to eat it and we lose the money. Do you know on the Part A side in the patients who are in the nursing home, do the same rules apply? Because Part B is sort of weird because you're you're directly billing to Part B. But on the Part A side, you're – no, they just – it's whatever. When, when it's we're like a free-for-all. When we're billing the facility, it doesn't matter. You can matter. order as many vitamin Ds as you want, and it just doesn't matter because right. the facility just gets their per DM, and it's just cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Right. Okay, got it. Yeah. Does I guess it's kind of more like the ER, as you had said. You know, you don't necessarily need the proper diagnosis. You just need a reason. Well, you why do you're because me- because the, actually the tests are coming out of their Part B in the emergency room because it's outpatient. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, um, I'd like to shift the conversation a little bit. Uh, to... Okay, I'm, I'm not done yet. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> so, but it so because we did nursing home, we did assisted living. So, nursing home has got A and B, depending upon what status the patient is within that facility. Assisted living is pretty much Part B billing, and then in the home, it's Part B. Correct. Got it. And then yeah. this, and it's all 100 percent for the Part B. No secondary insurance needed. Thank you very much. And that's that. Correct. Okay. So I think we're done with sort of the lab billing issues. I do want to get to the x-ray, but yeah. if you want to, do you want to do x-ray next? No, I wanted, I just wanted to finish off the lab conversation yeah. with uh, what trends are you seeing and what do you see kind of happening in the next three to five years? Sure. Well, a big part is definitely the molecular testing. Molecular um, testing. Molecular testing, which is important because you get your results a lot quicker. Um, it's a lot more sensitive. The results are a lot more accurate. But it's a lot more expensive. Can you give us an example? Of- um, sure. There's a couple of examples. Uh, one, there's molecular urine cultures, which you actually get your positive negative within four hours of running the test, um, which is phenomenal for an actual urine culture. Typically, a urine culture is two, three, maybe four days. Right. Um, with this, from the time that you actually put on the machine, you're having your results within, four, within about four hours. Then you also have um, the sensitivities, which are available 24 hours after that. Wow. That is... That it's is a so game great, except for, yeah. so I, I mean, I want to let you know, I'm full on bought in on this. Like I, like we utilize this within our own practice, yeah. but it's interesting when things sound so good, they don't always, um, it, it, it's a workflow problem, right? Because you still have to put in the order. Yeah. That order still has to go to the lab. That specimen still has to be collected. And in a lot of people, you can't collect a urine from a lot of bedbound, homebound patients. That's challenging. Nursing right. home, same. So, like, collection of the, the urine in and of itself is, like, a challenge. So then you get the urine. It has to get back to the lab. Yes, it's ready in four hours. But who at 2 a.m. is ready to receive that information? Right. So then it's still the next day. And then you still have to, like, it's still actionable. You know, there, there still are things that are outstanding that have to get fixed. How do you, do you, who collects the urine? In oh this? my God. Is well, this, is it the, the <laughs> facility Andy staff? Andy and I smile at each other because this has literally been. Facility staff or your staff? Well, my staff does not collect it. My staff picks it up, okay. but my staff does not collect it. Um, so if it's in the individual, individual home, it could be anyone from it, a spouse to the individual themselves to a caregiver. Or it can't be done. Or, or it just can't because they are, they're in a diaper. Right. Like and you can't just take you can't just like squeeze the diaper yeah. and pull. You know, I mean, it's just you can't do that. Does Correct. does molecular testing um, impact uh, accuracy and specificity in terms of like especially with urine in terms of having a contaminated sample? hundred percent. When you're doing molecular, it's looking for specific pathogens. Mm. When you're doing a regular culture, you're 
put it on a plate, waiting for it to grow. Whatever grows, grows. Whatever grows, grows, and you hope something uh, grows. So you so, can predetermine the types of bacteria that you would be looking for. Like if you do a molecular urinalysis, you, you're going to look for like 30 different pathogens. Now, it is possible that if you were growing it, yeah. you might actually grow a pathogen that's not on the main list. But usually the list is pretty comprehensive, yeah. so you don't have to really worry about it. What is the uh, cost of molecular testing relative to normal, and is the denial rate different? So the cost is definitely different. Uh, the hugely cost, different. Hugely different. A but, cost for a typical urine culture with sensitivities, maybe total $50 range, give or take, maybe a little bit more. Um, when you're dealing with a molecular urine culture, you're somewhere in the $400 range. So 8x. Correct. Eight, but 800%. 10 to the 1. It's really yeah. a factor of 10. Yeah. And An order the, of magnitude. So it's an order of magnitude. So this is, we, Andy and I have had the pleasure of having this discussion lots and lots of times, right? So if you can, if you say to yourself, okay, what is the most important thing here? Is it getting the result quickly? Is it getting the result quickly so that you can keep them out of the hospital? Is it so that you can put them on the right antibiotic? All right. of these different things come into play when you make a decision for a molecular test. If the decision is being made to put them on the exact right medication, it's a no-brainer, right? If the decision is being made to keep them out of the hospital, also a no-brainer, right? Because right. no matter what, if you put them on the wrong antibiotic, I mean, just sure. even that delta of $450, let's say it was 50 bucks to do a regular culture and you know, 500 bucks to do the molecular, that's a difference of about 450 bucks. The question is, is it worth 450 extra dollars to not have the patient take the wrong antibiotic and then find out it's the wrong antibiotic, then someone's got to re-prescribe it and, and then it's, mm -hmm. someone's got to go back to the pharmacy and get another antibiotic and the patient may have had a side effect and, you know, all of those sort of like things that kind of play into that. I think I think it's worth it. Additionally, I think it's worth it if you can keep the patient out of the emergency room because you did choose the right antibiotic as long as the workflow supports the which amen is, sister yeah. yeah i mean that's the problem is that you have to have the workflow to support this advanced testing technique mm. and if you don't have sort of the i guess the buy-in of your organization to say that this is something that is so important that it yeah. gets done in a way that pushes pushes the information through a system that it makes it effective an effective additional 450 bucks it, it may not be that helpful. Additionally, on the Part A side, in the nursing home side, where they're getting a per diem, I mean, they're going to say, oh, well, we're only going to get X amount of dollars per day to kind of take care of this patient, all the, you know, like all their costs all in. And you have to say, oh, well, would I rather spend money on rehab, like a physical sure. therapist, or am I going to spend a $500 on a molecular urinalysis? Even though I think we can all think to ourselves in a value-based system, that would be a totally different situation. But they're choosing probably the, to do not the molecular, I'm Correct. guessing, in the Part A side. So very often the Part A side and the Part B because they don't like to differentiate between the two when you're in a facility. Oh, right, when you're in a facility. Most of the nursing facilities don't do it at all. And that's the main reason is the cost. But once again, like you mentioned, if it keeps them up, one I know, they patient have out of the to hospital, see the big picture. The big picture is not always correct. So if, it, if you can keep one patient out of the hospital and they're in your facility for national five days right. and they're getting $500 a day for that patient, right. $2,500 that they now have that they wouldn't have other had because the patient is now staying in their facility, you have to look at that too. The problem is you're not right. always speaking with the correct people that make those decisions. Right. A lot of times. Something's the, on the expense side, but really it's on the expense side, but it will actually 
show up on the revenue side later, and they can't really necessarily differentiate that. And in nursing homes, if their readmission rates are too high, they actually lose a percentage of what they get from Medicare as well. So then it actually sort of gets them into a worse situation where they even make fewer decisions to have an expensive thing. Exactly. Yeah. Is the denial pattern and frequency different for these more expensive molecular tests? Um, so for the urine cultures, not really, um, because they, you know, it's, it's the same pretty much as doing a regular, um, urine culture. Okay. So it's not a problem. Um, the other type of tests that Amy mentioned earlier were our PGX tests and those, uh, that's basically, it's a, it's a blood or swab test that gives a, uh, genetic profile of medications that, um, are not going to necessarily be metabolized in the same way for everybody. So basically it gives a spectrum of, hey, these are some, you know, SNPs or some genetic anomalies that you may have that might make that Lipitor you've been taking all these years sort of ineffective or right. not metabolize Plavix. So keep going, sorry. Correct. So what happens very often with, with, and that's why that test is so important, you'll have certain patients that might be on 10 medications, three of which do nothing for them. They get all the side effects and none of the benefits. Um, so when we're going to this thing of personalized medicine, which I know Amy is a big proponent of, it can definitely help. But once again, it's all part of the process of it's nice the physician orders it. What do they do with it after they order it? Do they actually use it on a regular basis? Do they not? What it should be done is the, the test that we do, the first page is their current medications and how they metabolize their current medications. And then after that, there's additional 30, 35 pages. And it is a searchable PDF, but there's 30, 35, 30 or 35 other pages where that physician should be using as a blueprint going forward to say, okay, the patient does not metabolize X, Y, and Z. Let's switch them over to this. Or now they have diabetes. Let's look at what medications they do metabolize well and prescribe based off of that or pain management, et cetera. Um, But a big part of it really is that process of each individual provider of it's nice that you order it. It's nice that you get the information that is useful, but are you actually going to use it and make it benefit the patient? And again, it's a workflow issue because instead of just writing PGX test for John Smith, it's actually, it takes a a while to order it, right? Right. Like you've got to, there's more paperwork and it's more thoughtful. It's a more thoughtful ordering process. And then of course the interpretive side of it is again, more extensive than, oh, CBC, done, boom. It, It takes a while. And so even if you're like very eager to bring something into your system, from a workflow perspective, from an organizational perspective, you have to be ready to absorb that new workflow. Yeah. It can't just be like, oh, just add it on. Yeah. You know, like we've talked about with lots of other different things that just seem like no-brainers. It is clearly a no-brainer from a patient perspective. I mean, every patient should want to know, why am I even taking this medication if I'm only just getting the side effects? Right. You know, take me off of it, for God's sakes. Like it doesn't make... And of course, if you say, and Andy, we we can just say the amount of money that it costs the system in order to do this test, it's 2000 bucks. Mm-hmm. It's a $2,000, 100% by Medicare 100% paid by Medicare test. But if you think of all the deprescribing that could happen and all the maybe money that would be saved by, you know, not having to then chase down, maybe this person's having side effects and yeah. everybody thinks it's something else. I mean, I just think that the upside of that $2,000, you got to spend money to save money kind of mentality is probably just not in everybody's mind yet. Are the results from this PGX testing easy to interpret? Depends on the company that you use for PGX testing. Andy and I actually had a really good time sort of like, exploring how different PGX testing companies present the data to physicians. And this is actually a point of huge contention in the like world of Medicare and PGX testing is that it could just be 
that they just say, here are the, here's your haplotypes or whatever it is, whatever, right. however they're going to present it. Which would be totally it. not useful. Not useful, <laughs> right. right? And there, there's, there's, there's some dispute that, you know, doctors should not be fed back the information in a way that is easy to understand for some reason. They're like, what? Yes, they don't. There is actually the companies are getting in trouble from for spoon feeding providers the medication names that will actually be affected by these genetic problems. It, it sounds like some it, backdoor wheeling. And correct, from and, the and I would I would love to like have a whole session oh on PGX gosh. testing because it makes no sense. He and I went through all these different companies on on how do they give the information back to me because it turns out that if you want to be a really good provider and have like a broad case management group, right? Like if you're one doctor and you're like, I'd like to have a nurse and an LPN and maybe a social worker, but you you, you need those people to help move yourself through the day. If you give information back to that provider in a way that no one else can interpret it except for you, then that doesn't help you. But if you give right. it so that the nurse can be like, oh, here, this medicine they're on. Oh, look, this and this yeah. and this. You go, you need helper bees to do your day. And if you don't get the information back in a useful way, it doesn't help you. Wow. So there there is this problem in, in the PGX testing world. What's well, very expensive, right? And there's probably room for fraud somewhere in all of this. Yeah. Um, because if somebody's collecting $2,000 for it, there's probably somebody out there that wants to take advantage of that. Yeah. So um, fascinating. What about any other kind of trends or future things that you know are coming down the pike or you're concerned about in terms of billing, coding, reimbursement in the lab world? I mean, there's PAMA. Um, I would tell you what it stands for, but I remember all I know is that it, it, for the last three years, it's cut 10% off my reimbursement for most of my tests. What is PAMA? Um, it's a government... Um, look back. They look back at a certain amount of time frame. Um, supposedly, there's contention right now that they only went to certain types of labs. They're supposed to get a good cross-section. Is this like a Medicare research. program? It or? is a government program to look back to save money on Medicare. I see. Um, so they were supposed to go and have a nice cross-section of you know types of labs that they got information from. But in reality, they went to some of the larger labs mm -hmm. and not so many other labs. Um, and the information that they got, they just ended up using for their pricing model. And what happened was it went from, you know, what the pricing was that they were paying. And they've 10% the first year, 10% the second year. I believe it's 10% this year. And then next year, I forget what it is, but it, so they keep lowering. So off CBC is like currently you are actually seeing this happen in your reimbursements. Correct. They're lowering it every single year. Um, which is difficult. Um, the benefit, once again, is there are there's other types of testing that are that is coming out. The PCR molecular testing, as I mentioned, is a lot more expensive um, and is a lot more profitable than some of those other testing. So the question is, how much longer are labs like us going to be able to perform the actual basic necessities of what these patients need based on what the insurances are paying us. Because the margin is getting slimmer and slimmer. The margins are getting slimmer and slimmer. And, you know, they're expecting us to do more and more. And it's more and more difficult to actually get paid because of their requirements of getting paid. So staff costs more, et cetera. Right. Um, meanwhile, obviously, as we all know, um, minimum wages going up, which means our employees will be more expensive. So how much longer can that continue? You know, we hope we can figure out how to be around because if we're not around, we are the only local lab that services nursing homes and assisted livings um, and homebound patients in the state of Maryland. Really? You're the only one? We're the only locally based lab. There is another lab that is based out of another state that does nationwide, but 
they provide nationwide service. Right. Um, we provide that local service. We're not perfect. There's always going to be issues that pop up, but the idea is that we actually care about the patients. We right. actually try to take care of them the best way Healthcare's possible. Healthcare is local. Yeah, exactly. Can yeah. I ask one question? Because I think this is really important for any listener to understand. So I, pretend I'm I'm a doctor's practice. Why can't I just open my own lab and just do all this myself and make my two thousand dollars and my yeah? Because you can buy these testing. machines for five k. Yeah. Online. Why? Why? Why can't we do that? Um, there's a lot of regulations out there that don't allow um, providers to order tests that they actually benefit off of. The actual term is ECRA, E-K-R-A. Got put into effect, what, five years ago or so? Because it used to be that a lot of physicians' offices had labs in their office that they made profit off of. And when they put these laws into effect and they realized how much less the physicians were now ordering because they were not making profits off of it. Um, so the, the physicians cannot make money off of labs that they're ordering. So oh, interesting. That's a primary. Now, now there are some safe havens. There are some safe harbors in there for certain types of testing, like et point of care. If you do like a exactly. clear wave testing, all there's that. certain types of things that are obviously you know Urine safe dips. harbors. But for the most part, having a full service lab where they can make real good money, it just it's not going to be an option for compliance purposes. Wow. This concludes part one of our interview with Andy Diamond. Part two, where Andy teaches us everything about the mobile imaging world, coming soon. You have been listening to the Mastering Medicare podcast. Visit MasteringMedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. 